More than 20% of people in faith communities are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. But sadly, churches are often the last place a victim of abuse can find help and healing. I'm Kelly Downing, and my dream is a church where survivors like me and so many others can feel safe, be heard, and find healing. Until that happens, this is Survivor Sanctuary, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse who are navigating the road to healing and for anyone who wants to be a part of the major heart renovation the church needs so that our faith communities can truly become sanctuaries for survivors. Welcome to Survivor Sanctuary. This is Kelly, and it is our second official episode. I'm super excited to kick off the show today. And I want to thank you so much for downloading the first episode for all of your kind comments, uh, your emails, your messages to me. It means a lot. And it means a lot that you're listening today. I know you have a lot of choices. And so the fact that you're choosing to spend this time with me and the Survivor Sanctuary podcast, it really means a lot. Well, Survivor Sanctuary is available pretty much everywhere that you listen to podcasts. But I was looking at the stats and the vast majority of people are listening on iTunes or on Apple Podcasts, I should say. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, would you do me a favor and would you rate the show however many stars you think it deserves and leave a review as well? When you rate the show and you leave a review, you actually make it easier for people to be able to find the podcast so that when people are searching for sexual abuse in the church or healing from abuse, uh, it's more likely that this podcast will pop up in their search results, the more ratings and reviews that we have. So if you would do me that favor and rate the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, I would greatly appreciate that. And I am going to be picking out some raters and reviewers. Well, it has to be reviewers because I need to know your email address and your contact info and all that. But I'm going to be picking people out to give away some really great resources for sexual abuse survivors and stuff that you definitely don't want to miss out on. So go ahead and leave a review if you haven't done that already. And I'd also love to hear from you. You can visit SurvivorSanctuary.com and find out more about how you can connect with us and send me an email, kelly at SurvivorSanctuary.com. Very easy to remember. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to connect with you. I'd love to hear your story. So if you want to connect with me that way, kelly at SurvivorSanctuary.com. Well, it is time for us to dive into episode two. It's our very first interview here on Survivor Sanctuary, and I'm so excited to introduce you to Kelly Haynes. I heard her story very recently, and right when I heard her story, I saw her her on the Dr. Oz show sharing a bit of her story and I read about it on her blog and in some other news articles around the internet and I just knew right away that I wanted the listeners of Survivor Sanctuary to be able to hear Kelly's story. She is such a special person and she's so brave and so courageous and the things that she's gone through it's just crazy to think about but it is so important for you to hear her story and to hear the experiences that people are having in uh, Christian institutions and in churches with sexual abuse. And I want to give a little bit of a content warning. We are going to be talking a bit about the abuse that Kelly experienced. And of course, we're handling this story with care. uh, But I just want to give you that warning that there is going to be that theme here in this interview with Kelly Haynes. So I want you to take care if that's something that you need to do. Maybe you need to listen with a buddy, somebody that can be there for you while you're listening. Um, Maybe just take a break if you feel like you need one. However, it is that you keep yourself grounded and keep yourself calm. Uh, Just take care of yourself as you're listening. Well, let's dive right into it. I'm so excited to introduce you to Kelly Haynes, the first guest on the Survivor Sanctuary podcast. Kelly, thank you so much for joining me today on Survivor Sanctuary. Thank you so much for having me. I wanted to have you the second that I read your story for the very first time. Um, Someone actually shared that they were going to be a guest on the Dr. Oz show and your name came up. So I looked you up and I read your story on your blog and I knew right away that I wanted my listeners to be able to hear your story. And just as a little FYI, you're the very first guest on Survivor Sanctuary. So I'm really excited that you're here. First of all, Kelly, I just want to thank you so much for being willing to share your story 
I know that it hasn't been easy for you all the time. We're going to get into that a little bit in this interview, uh, that not everybody is happy and excited when people start speaking out about sexual abuse. And I know that you've faced opposition and that you've gone through some experiences that are really hurtful and you're still fighting and you're still standing up for what's right and you're still speaking out. And that to me is so huge. I feel like you're a warrior and you're very courageous for just going despite the opposition that you have. Because I know that hiding and shrinking back is a lot easier. So I just wanted to say that. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, It has been hard at times, but you know what? Like you get through the hard times and you keep pressing forward because um, I had someone reach out to me at one point um, not too long ago from the area and just, you know, shared a picture of, of her girls with me um, and said, you know, I left the church because of your story and it made it like, okay, I can keep pushing through. So there is hard times. And then there's other times when you get to actually see and visualize the people that are listening. And that makes it so much worth it, so much more worth it. Yeah, that's great to know that you're making a difference in people's lives. And a lot of times you're making a difference and you don't get to hear about it. But it's so awesome uh, when sometimes you do get that little glimpse like, hey, my speaking out has helped someone. So that's really cool. And we're going to get to a little bit more about your speaking out. But first, I want our listeners to just hear your story. I think your story is so important. So can you kind of take us back to the beginning of your story? Sure. So um, I was raised in the Independent Fundamental Baptist Church. Um, I was raised, I went, started um, kindergarten in the school system, and then I went all the way through 12th grade. When I was 14, which was right around my ninth grade year, I had just started what was considered like um, middle school. It was more like a high school, middle school. Um, it was the way that it works there is a little different in Christian schools than it is in the public schools. But um, so I had met this teacher. His name was John Longacre. I really didn't care for him at first. Uh, my friend and I just had like a weird feeling about him. But I soon watched like the way he was with other girls in the school, and I had had some other mental health issues. I was dealing with an eating disorder at the time. I was also um, dealing with some cutting issues. So he kind of noticed that I had kind of reached out to him at one point and just was like talking to him about it. Um, Never once thinking anything bad, just thinking that, oh, look, I like, you know, he he seems to care. Like he seems to be a teacher that cares, you know? So um, we, we interacted a little bit. Eventually, and it was so it was so slow and this, so subtle that little boundaries kept getting crossed. And like um, he would put his hands around my shoulders. He would rub against my back. He would, um, you know, be touching my foot. Like if we were on a bus on a trip, he'd be touching my leg underneath the chair and like wiping, using his fingers to like. And I, I guess at the time it was it was a weird, like, I was so confused. Um, it was more of like, a, oh my word, like, you know, he really is paying attention to me. You get the, you know, the adrenaline rush like you would any other time. And yet at the same time, I'm like, you know, what is this right? Is this wrong? What's going on? So we eventually became um, pretty close. He started counseling with me. Um, my parents knew him. He was friends with them. His wife and my mom taught Sunday school together. Um, he had come and eaten dinner at my house quite a few times. My mom was uh, the director of the daycare, and she um, took care of his child while he was taking care of hers. So so it progressed. My parents were very on board with allowing him to, be, to, to counsel with me just because, you know, he was a friend and he seemed to want what was, what was good for me. My mom did actually say to him at one point, you know what, you know, please be careful. I think that she might be getting feelings for you, but he was, he kind of dismissed that and, you know, never really say anything. So my mom did get that gut feeling, but you know, you just, at the time, she just didn't go anywhere with it. So. Um, we started having doing just getting more sexual as as um progressed probably my 10th and 11th grade well my 10th 11th 12th grade year was the worst um the first interaction that we had together um i remember it vividly we were um on the you know, we had like this 
the like the back end of the sanctuary was like somewhere where people didn't usually go unless it was a Sunday and then the school was behind that and uh, we were on the uh, excuse me the organ side and there was like steps that go up to the baptistry and nobody would ever like go up there and so we went up there and um, that was the first time that um, he had ever touched me um, we I had touched him it was you know and that's where it slowly progressed um, we went from touching to oral sex happening inside the classroom with windows um, that's one thing that I think that People always think, well, you know, we have windows in the classroom. It doesn't matter. There's spots in classrooms that you can't, you can't see. And, you know, it would happen inside those classrooms. He became very, um, I became their babysitter. Um, I used to watch their son. And he would use that as a um, tool. Because if I was doing something he didn't like, or if he was trying to manipulate me in any way, he knew that by asking someone else to watch his son, would bother me terribly and would always cause me to go into like a, a fit of like, you know, anxiety. And so he would use that against me um, all growing up. And as, as I grew up in a Christian school, my class was, there was 25 of us in our in total class. And, you know, I was looked at as the as the kid with like emotional issues i was the kid that was like always you know a problem always like there was always something wrong with me and at the time it just was like more baggage packed on more baggage because i couldn't tell anybody why i was the way i was and yet people were like making fun of me and people were you know just treating me poorly because they didn't know either Anyway, so all that to say that, you know, my through my senior year, we progressed to basically uh, any other type of relationship. Um, there was sexual intercourse. There was oral sex, mostly um, a lot of touching, a lot of that kind of stuff. I ended up graduating in 1996 and going off to Clearwater Christian College. He ended up leaving the school at that time and moving to a school in Massachusetts, um, which was Twin City Baptist Temple, and he ended up teaching there. For the f my first year of college, we kept in touch. We emailed. I mean, we didn't have cell phones and that kind of stuff back then, but we emailed each other a couple times a week, and I would give him a phone call. You know, I would talk to him or his son, and, you know, we kept in touch. That summer, I came home. Um, I wanted to go out and meet him, visit him for a week, so I went out for a week, and it was at that week um, that I realized that something wasn't right. And, um, I had gone into school with him one day and I could just tell that the relationship between him and the girls that he was teaching seemed oddly and eerily familiar to me. And, um, I confronted him about it. Um, he assured me that no, that he would never do that to any that to anyone else. That I was a special one. He even showed me that in one of the books on his bookshelf, he had pictures of me that were um, that I was I had like a two piece bathing suit on. Um, and he said, "See, I would only ever you know this would only be you and me." And I'm like, "Okay," but I just knew in my heart that it wasn't that way. And so the night before I left his house, I, I sat down with him downstairs. His wife was upstairs. She knew we were down there. We were down there till like two, three in the morning, um, talking. And I basically just said to him, "Like, what's going on?" And he said, "You know, you're getting old enough now to to go out on your own and to be your own." you know, to be your own. He's like, ah, you know, you don't need me anymore. And, and right there was the point where I realized, you know what, he looks at this relationship differently than I do. I looked at it more as a parental type, you know, he cared about me. He was there for me. He, you know, he looked at it like it was like, you know, a sexual relationship. It was a girlfriend, boyfriend relationship. And I, it was at that moment I realized, you know what, you don't understand. Like I, you mean more to me. I thought you were going to always be there for me. I thought you were going to be like my dad. I thought you were going to, you know, and, um, the idea for me to think that he was not going to be in my life just was not feasibly possible. And I said to him, um, I said, if you decide that you don't want to be a part of my life anymore, then I, I don't want to live. Because I said, you have been such a huge part of my life and I love you and I care for you. And he was, and he was just like, well, you do what you have to do. And I'm like, okay, you know, but like, please promise me that. And I'll, I'll never forget this. I said, please promise me you'll come out to my funeral. He said, absolutely. I wouldn't miss it. And so I knew at that point when.
all of that. Everything was just so wrong. Something was so wrong. And uh, so I was that next morning leaving with his wife. Um, she was going to take me to New Jersey um, where a friend of mine was going to pick me up. He picked me up um, from the uh, from the meeting point and I got in the car and he knew something was wrong. And I'm telling you, I don't really remember our conversation. I just remember um, him just knowing that something was wrong and kept pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And he finally got finally after all that time from the time I was 14 till now, here I am 19. I had never told a soul. Never even hinted. I mean, I had made comments, but never hinted. I finally told him my whole story. And I'm like, please promise me you're not going to tell. He never said he wasn't going to tell. He just said, you just need to talk to me. He's like, do you realize that this is a crime? Do you really? And I'm just like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Like, you know, I try to justify it, everything like that. Um, but thankfully for that kid, and that's what he was. He was 19, same age as me. He went and dropped me off at my house. Um, knowing full well that I was very suicidal, he went right to the church and said, you need to do something now. And they were like, okay, we'll, we'll handle it internally. He's like, oh no. He goes, I'm not leaving here till you call the police. You get the police here right now. I'm, she's in, you know, and she's in, in great danger. I need to talk to them, bring them in here now. And they're like, no, 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 we'll take care of it. And um, he's like, no, I want them here. So he finally got, they finally, he was persistent enough that they brought in the police and um, they were up at my house hours later, not that long. And everything had just gone from, you know, I can't live without him to like, oh my word, now I'm in the middle of a, a law, like I'm going to put him in prison kind of idea. And I was just so dis distraught. So that was pretty much my story. Um, lasted for you know from the time I was in ninth grade through my first year of college um we did do sexual things while I was out there to visit with him it was just so confusing um just left with a lot of confusion and a lot of heartache so I want to ask um because that is it's super confusing and I know that anybody who's listening to this podcast who's experienced sexual abuse understands that confusion they understand like what happens in your brain and everything just gets kind of warped. But how would you try to explain it to a person who asks like, didn't you know that like he was a bad person? Didn't you know that what he was doing was wrong? Um, like, how is it that you had this affection for him at the same time that you were being sexually abused by him? So it's a really great question um, because I have been asked that question um, by people who don't understand. And the answer that I have for you is that I had such a need in my life for attention, for um, nurturing, for just to, to feel and be believed and loved and cared for that I truly, fully just put out all of the bad things in my head so that I could feel the love that he was giving me. I, I didn't know what love really was. I mean, I'm 14. Like, what was I supposed to, was it, was it, to me, it was like, oh my word, you know, he's paying attention to me. He comes out of his way to ask me how I'm doing. He does all these things. And so I, the confusion came in because, you know, I knew that I wasn't supposed to be sexual with anyone. Um, I lived in purity culture. So I knew that, you know, you, you don't do that stuff. He preached in chapel messages on not doing things like that, but yet I knew that that we were doing stuff, but I trusted him. So I would say to him, are you sure this is okay? Like, what if we get in trouble? What if the, and he was like, he would somehow in my mind, calm me down and be like, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And I was just like, okay, you know, like he knows what he's doing. So I, I just, I just trusted him. And when you are lacking those kind of needs in your life, I think that you throw out you know, you already are for, I'm 14 and common sense wasn't the best thing going for me. And so, you know, you're, you're asking me to, to figure out what's going on and make a, make an adult decision that I didn't have the ability to do, not only because I wasn't an adult, but because I was now in need of a lot of things, um, emotionally. And that seems to be like something that he capitalized on and, and was able to really take advantage of. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that was, he was like, he was the like, 
person that everybody went to. He he always was looking for the people that were the most needy. Um, so yeah, it's just I, I I like I honestly sometimes I'll be honest and um with you and I still sometimes look back and think how could I have not seen it? But I'm telling you like when you're an adult and when you're a kid, it's you, you don't see things near the same, you know. And now I look at my own children and see how easily that someone older could have could mess with their mind. Exactly. And manipulate them. And I mean, it happens to adults as well, because it's such a powerful thing to have somebody who knows all the right buttons to push and knows like where to meet your needs and to let your guard down. So no, I can't even, you know, as, as a 14 year old and and on into college, like, you know, that's just, that's what he was capitalizing on is all of those needs. And, and you know what, that's, there's so much missing in the family structure now that that growing up that emotional need and one thing a girl needs is her dad and that emotional connection and you know I I unfortunately just didn't have it and I think he knew that because he was friends with my family he knew what my family dynamic was and he knew he could capitalize on the fact that like I had this incredible emotional need that needed to be met and he knew that he could meet it and and take advantage of it so the police have been called and take us through that a little bit. Did he go to prison? What happened to him as a result of the abuse? It was a very long process. Um, it was probably the worst of everything. I mean, everything that I'd gone through, I, I, the legal system was, it was hard. I was still emotionally attached to him. I wasn't planning on telling anybody and getting him in trouble. So now you've got the factor. And this is what I try to get people to understand is that you have on the table now, here's me fully and hundred percent in love with this man because I love him as a father. I love him for all that he's done for me. I love him now in a sexual type way. And now I'm standing in front of all these people who are questioning me about this relationship and telling me that like, no, this, it was wrong. You were taken advantage of. It was, you know, this, it was that. And I was so baffled. I was so utterly confused that like, it was, it was so, it was just so hard to to be able to, even to this day, like, I hate looking back on that time because it was so tough, but ultimately he ended up being charged originally with uh, corrupting the morals of a minor, endangering the welfare of a child, um, indecent assault, and um, there was another one that was like a felony charge. He got those dropped because I had found out, and this, this is where I kind of regret now as an adult, but I had found out that if you say that any that he did nothing that he didn't do anything sexual to me till I was 16, then all of the major charges would be dropped and most likely he wouldn't go to prison. So I had found that out, and um, so I, you know, changed my story um, at, right before the uh, preliminary hearing to say that nothing happened till after my 16th birthday. The funny part is, is at the time I did not know that he had already confessed to what happened at 14. But what I said on the stand is what mattered. So um, he was at the preliminary hearing, the two felony charges were dropped. Uh, We had the DA and I had discussed that most likely he was going to plead guilty and he would get uh, five years probation. Um, When we went into the hearing, his sentencing hearing, because he did plead guilty, we went into his sentencing hearing you get like the victim impact statement and then he gets to have a defense impact statement, I guess. And in that defense impact statement, he stood before the judge and said, just to make it clear, I never once forced her to do anything. She at times came on to me. Um, it was, not, you know, I, I was, you know, I shouldn't have taken advantage of her, but you know, this was consensual. Like, like, and the judge was really offended and, my, the DA looked over at me, he leaned over and he said, he goes, remember I told you he wasn't going to get any jail time. I said, yeah, he goes, that might change. And so he let him talk for a few more minutes. And then after that, he was like, you're done talking. And he's like, I don't care if she would have pranced herself naked across your desk. It was your responsibility to grab her by the arm and take her to the, to where she should have been where she should have, where she would have gotten trouble. It is not your job to take advantage of her, whether it was 
consensual or not. And he goes, you, you know, you have offended this court. And he ended up sentencing him to uh, 17 and a half to 20, no, 18 and a half to 24 months. So um, that's what he got. Um, and he served the half of it in county prison. He was released on parole after the first after the first year. He ended up getting a job with a Bible books in, at a Bible bookstore at the um, local mall. His brother in law ran it, and he became a manager. And he managed six six or four or five sixteen year old girls. And when I told my story with the Wartburg watch back in October, a few weeks later, I got a phone call from um, a girl who, who said, I know who you are. And I'm like, okay, who, you know, how do you know who I am? And she said, she goes, I worked under him at, at this Bible bookstore and he did the same thing to me. And this is all while he was on parole, while he had parole officers coming in and out of his work. It, it, it was heartbreaking to me because I listened to her story and her story was the same as mine, except for, you know, there was a few, a few different aspects, but for the most part, he did the same thing to her. They, they do the same thing. You know, it's not, you know, unheard of. And after I came out um, with my story, like after I had told back, you know, back in 95, 96, or 97, I'm sorry, you know, a, a girl from New Jersey came forward and said, you know, he did the same to me, but we just said that if he would leave, that we wouldn't press any charges. And that was at another church that he had done this to a girl? That was at a, a church in New Jersey. And so the church just swept it under the carpet and said, you know, move, just keep moving. And so he moved on and came to our church to go to um, a, a seminary that was local. And um, he got in as just as a janitor. And um, then he moved into like teaching uh, young singles. He um, there are two girls that, that I know um, currently who ha have um, accused him of having sexual relationships with them, but they have not come out because they have not. I mean, they were adults at the time, so they never really, but they, their stories, I've listened to one of their stories and it's like listening to my story all over again. So I, I believe her a hundred percent. Um, there was the relationship with me that he had, there was a couple other suspicious relationships that, um, that were unfold that kind of kind of came out during the investigation with mine. When they conducted the invest, when they, when they went to, um, Massachusetts to talk to the girls there, two of the girls' parents had filed a um, report with the with Youth and Social Services saying that, that he was coming on to their girls too. Nothing ever came of it. I don't think that the parents wanted their kids to have to go through it because it hadn't really progressed that far. Thankfully, I was able to, you know, get in there, stop it before it got anywhere, but they did actually you know, put in a report with, um, Massachusetts, um, children service, ch child services. So wh why would this man stop now? He didn't, he went to prison for it for a year. He did it as soon as he got out. He's done it before me. He's done it after me. Like why all of a sudden did it do, do, does the church think that he's all of a sudden just changed and become something better, you know, something better? No, he just hasn't gotten caught. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more from Kelly in just a minute. But I want to let you know that you can find Kelly's Dr. Oz interview where she spoke out about her story on the Dr. Oz show linked in the show notes. If you go to SurvivorSanctuary.com and click on episode two, you can also find it in the show notes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. So we're going to be linking to the Dr. Oz show. We're linking to Kelly's Twitter her Facebook, all the places that you can find her and follow her and learn more about her story, including her blog, which is amazing as well. So you can check out links to everywhere that Kelly is online in the show notes of today's episode. All right, let's get back into our interview with Kelly. So you, once he had served his time, he was out, you moved on with your life. I understand you got married, you had some kids. I got married in 2000 and my husband's going to kill me if I get this wrong. Um, I, I got, we got married in 2002. I had a baby in 2003 and 2004. And then I um, took a little break. And then I had another baby in 2006. So I set up house pretty much soon after. 
And that kept me busy. That kept my mind occupied. I was a mom. I was mar getting married. I was everything I had dreamed of was happening. So I didn't, I really kind of just thought that it was over. You know, I had had some counseling, but not a ton. But once, you know, my husband came in my life, I was happy again. And so, you know, we just thought that it would, that it had gone away. And it definitely surfaced again as um, my life started to calm down and my kids started to get a little bit older. Tell us a little bit about that. How did the abuse show up in your life um, as your kids started to get older? What happened was, is um, the Lord blessed me with two girls at first. I never thought I'd have girls. So, you know, having two girls was like an amazing dream. And when they got to be about, um, one was going to be two and the other one was going to be four, I started getting anxiety like I had never had before. I was feel like I was like feeling as if I couldn't protect them. I was afraid he was going to come after them. Like I was afraid that every man that I went past in Walmart was looking at my girls. Like I got into this overly like obsessive behavior of thinking that he was following me. Um, I had gone to some neighbors and I had said to them, I'm like, I think this guy's following me. I'm like, I don't want my husband to know. I don't want him to think that I tried to like bring him back, blah, blah, blah. And so um, we decided that we were going to make a police report. Um, I told them that, you know, I think he's following me. I think I saw him at Walmart. I think I saw him here or there. I said, I think he's after my girls. And they took their police report. They ended up doing an investigation and coming back and saying, did you really see him? And I'm like, yes, I, I, I saw him. And they're like, well, they're, we've, we've been able to prove that everything time you say you've seen him, he would not have possibly been where you said. And I'm like, listen, like, I don't, I'm just telling you, like, I've seen him. I've done, I've done all this. The police officer was like, we have actual records of him being either working or somewhere where he can prove he was when you say that he saw him. So I looked at them and I said, then I guess I didn't see him, but I, I swore that I, 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 I swear he's following me. And the, the, the um, police officer was like, no, you're lying. And I'm like, I'm not lying. And at that point he's like, well, how can it be true if he ha was at work when you said he was there? And I literally just looked at him and said, I guess I was lying then, but I said, I swear I saw him. And they, they ended up uh, charging me with filing a false police report. I had had no counseling um, up until that point. So PTSD, I didn't know what any of that was. I didn't know that this was normal behavior that was happening afterwards. I didn't have anything to say to this guy except for, I guess I'm lying. I don't, I don't know. Like I swear I saw him. So I went back into counseling. Um, actually after the police left that, that day, I ended up being um, committed to a mental health place for about two weeks because I had just lost it. I, I could, I felt like I had lost everything. Like I, I couldn't protect my girls anymore. And I've got this police officer telling me that I'm now in, in trouble. And um, I was pregnant with my son at the time. And so when I, when I went, um, I was committed, for, they, they, they put me in for about two weeks. And it was then that I learned that these are all very common PTSD symptoms uh, of, of having, like having it come back because of a, of, of a life situation and having two girls is a perfect life situation that it would, that would bring it up. And it was new education to me. And so it was from there on um, that I started getting some counseling, some more counseling. I did well again for a while. Um, and then I was having some episodes uh, later on that were my husband was concerned about things I was forgetting, things I was like buying things that like I didn't remember buying, um, doing things I didn't remember doing, saying like he said, we would have a full conversation about things. And then I would say we never had it. And so my husband started to get really concerned that something was really going wrong. So we went into did some medical testing. There was nothing. They didn't see anything wrong. Um, and, uh, I was speaking with another pastor at the time and he's like, I, I, I something just isn't right. He goes, I feel like you're just not there. There's just something wrong. And he was able to refer me to a, um, to a specialist in the, um, disassociative identity disorder. And, um, he, t I went up there and, um, she, uh, was able to, figure out that, um, I d did, um, show all signs of having DID and that it had now become 
you know, it had answered a lot of questions as to a lot of things that were going on in my life, all through my life. And, um, that kind of getting counseling for that, moving through to that got me to the point where now, where I was able to then again, you know, say, tell my story again, because, you know, I had really went into, like you said, in the beginning, like I went back into hiding because it was like, okay, it's over now. Everybody just wants it to be gone and done. And so I, I stopped talking about it. And, um, despite the fact that it was eating the, in my insides, I just, you know, I felt like I, I, you know, I should be happy now. I'm married. I have kids. I have this wonderful life. I have this beautiful home. I have, a, you know, a good job. I'm a state. I mean, at the time I was at a good job. Then I was a stay at home mom. I, I just felt like I didn't have a place to, to communicate. And that's kind of the expectation, right? Of, of other people. Like they just, okay, the event's over. So now you're fine, but they don't understand that with abuse like that, it doesn't end. Absolutely. Nobody understood it. Nobody understood it. And to this day, I feel like the only person that really does understand it still to this day is my husband. Like he's the only one because he lives with me every day. He lives with the things that happen to me, the, the, the way I cope with things, the way that I handle things, um, the, the, the disassociation that happens, the way that I, you know, it takes every ounce of everything I have to be a mom and to be, a, to, to be involved in my kids' lives because there's just so much that goes on and sexual abuse does more than just, it's not just, okay, well that happened to you and it's over. It, it will affect me for the rest of my life. And my hope is it won't affect me as much as it has. And then I can continue to work on healing, but it is still, I am, this is 20, almost 22, 22, 23 years later. And here I am still struggling and still getting counseling for the same thing, you know, because it does affect your entire life. Exactly. It does. And that's so important. Um, I, I'm glad that you shared that. Thank you. Because I, I know that survivors of abuse get it because we live it, but there are people who have not gone through it, who exactly what you said is just this thing. It happened, it's over. And now we leap it in the past and we move on, but it kind of moves with us. And um, it's, it's something that, yes, there is profound healing and you heal more and more and more as you live, but there's not like this destination of healed where everything's fine now and I can just pop some balloons and champagne and like I'm a-okay. That's not how healing from abuse works. No, it doesn't. And you know what? No one needs, and I, I, I was always ashamed um, that like, okay, like, you know, like I said, like I had this beautiful family. I had this wonderful husband. I had everything going for me. Why in the world was I still being committed to mental health hospitals? Why was I still having eating disorders? Why was I still having cutting issues? I had all these things as a mom and I felt terrible. Like I felt like I just, I, I didn't know why it was happening, but it, it did happen. And it, because the, the implications of what happened, even at 14 to 17, 18 years old, have have come like I've been able to heal parts of my life and then another part of my life will, will will breed more more issues and then it comes back again because it affected it affected everything that it affected the way I learned how to think and to um, rationalize and to you know just figure out life and you know sometimes I feel as an adult like so immature because I don't handle circumstances the same as everyone else, but I realized that it's just because when I should have been learning how to handle situations, I was being taken advantage of. And, you know, it's important for survivors to know that I don't care if you're 20, 40, 60, 80, it, it's okay. It, if you're, if you're manifesting symptoms and stuff, it's okay. It's going to happen. Right. And that's, that's huge too. I, I love that message to people. Um, cause we, we shame ourselves for so many things. We shame ourselves for the abuse and then we shame ourselves for not healing. And so that's super important. Um, so I appreciate you sharing that. So, um, you eventually found out that the man who had abused you was the senior pastor of a church. So how did you find that out and kind of walk us through that and what you thought having found out that information? In a, in a digital age of, you know, the internet, I would periodically like type in his name just to see like where he was, because at this point now, you know, I'm still having issues of worrying about my girls, but at the same time, I've got the internet so I can type in and be like, okay, he lives, you know, in Massachusetts or he lives in Vermont. He lives here. He's not near me. Um, 
there came a point where like all of a sudden like there was nothing like you I couldn't find anything on him and like in this day and age that's just really hard to do and I thought that just was really suspicious to me so I did a little bit of digging and I, I tell people it's terrible but I found an obituary where he was the officiant for it and I literally like saw Pastor John Longacre of, of Bible Fellowship Church in Castleton, Vermont. So I typed in the church and um, it came up like on a Google's map, but there was no website really for the church. So I did some more digging um, and then I ended up finding this very cheap. It's actually the one he still uses today um, is a very, very simple, basic website about the church. He doesn't really put much on it. And it, but there is a section on there that says about the pastor and there he stood, sits behind his desk, which is a very popular picture from everything that I've said. Um, he's sitting behind his desk and he was the pastor of, of this church. I couldn't, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I, I just, I screamed and then I cried because I thought, you know, I thought I had stopped him from ever being able to get into a position like that before ever again. And it was obvious that I didn't. And I felt at that moment that I had failed. I had failed in being honest back then. I failed in, in, in everything I did because now he was able to, to crawl back into a church environment. And I'm, I'm sure the feeling for you was he definitely didn't stop abusing people because, I mean, he's a predator. That's what they do. They prey on people. And to be the fact that he even went back to being in a church position tells me that you're that he's not sorry for what he's done. That he he's he just he's making him, he's make he's getting himself back into positions where he's in control. And you know when you he's a pastor. He's I I I've listened to his messages. I've listened to him talk. I've listened to him preach. He knows full well the qualifications of a pastor. He knows full well he does, does not he does not fit for the qualifications of of a pastor. He knows it. He reads his Bible just like I do. But he still continues to be there because it's about power, and it's about being in a position where he can have, get his hands on people. And I'm. Do not doubt for one second that there are people, maybe not, maybe not underage girls, but that there are people in his church being manipulated and being and and being abused by this man in some way. So what did you do in response to finding out that he was still there in that church and pastoring? Yeah. So for my first time I did was I didn't I, I, I talked to my husband and we were like, he was like, you know, see if you can find out who the pastor was before him. Um, I did find that information out and I texted him and I just sent him an email and I just said, hi, my name is, Ke you know, Kelly Haynes. I said, I just wanted you to read this article. I was wondering if you were aware of, of this, of this man's background, because I saw that you were the pastor of the church before he was. Um, and he texted me back and said, no, I had no idea. Well, that was just like, oh my word. And so he gave me 10 people's email addresses of um, influential people in the church um, of people who, you know, had been there for a while, who held a position, whatever the case may be. And he, you know, he said, you know, he goes, here's the people that you need to contact. So I literally, all I did was sent an email that says, just an FYI. And I connected to it, the Google articles from back from 1997. Um, they're still online. You can still see them. They've actually kind of come back up to the surface since I've come out with my story. But um, I just said, I just didn't know if you knew this about your pastor. And I heard nothing. Like I didn't hear any response back. Um, I was a little surprised. Um, but my husband was like, listen, like he goes, you know, you've already been arrested for, you know, bothering this person, bothering him already, because I don't want you getting in trouble again. He goes, just let it go, you know, whatever. So I, that was what I was going to do. I was just going to let it go. And then I ended up getting this horrific. And if you can go, if you go to the Wartburg watch, you can read the email that he sent. Um, it was a, I shouldn't say he sent it. It was a Mike Adams who I have now since found out in talking to people who have left the church, there has never been a Mike Adams. There isn't a Mike Adams. It's a pseudo name for somebody in that church that was either standing up for him or he himself basically telling me that I was not a Christian and that how could I not be forgiving and how could I had try to ruin this man's life and all this stuff. And it, it broke me. 
that broke me. Like I, when I read that email or message, however it was sent to you, I was shaking and my blood was boiling. I was like, I will find you Mike Adams and I will destroy you. Like I was ready to go on a road trip. I was so angry and hurt for you. It was, that was an awful, awful message. I don't even have like the words to like, excuse me for just a second. No, take your time. I don't even have the words to describe how all of that made me feel because I already was still confused. Like, how could this possibly be that he would get back into a church? And then to have somebody who at the time I, I didn't know, I knew in my heart that John was under, he, he, the information in that email was only information that John would have known. So I know if, even if he didn't write it, somebody he knows did write it and he was influential in the writing of it. And I said to him, like, literally, I literally said, you know, I literally said, you know, I said, I want to write back. He's like, no, you do not. He goes, don't you dare write back. And so I didn't, I just left it go, but I was so messed up, so messed up. Um, and my husband um, just did the best he could to just reassure me that I did everything that I could. And um, that was kind of how it all ended. And then um, I went to, started going to a different church and um, I, I started my blog that I have now called misunderstood. Um, and I, um, wrote about this particular situation and one of my pastors read it and they had been reading D um, Parsons blog and said, you know, you need to, you need to tell your story. And I was just like, um, I, I said, I don't know if I can do it again. And they're like, just talk to her. So I did. And so I did. So it was all good. And um, she ended up telling my story for me. Yeah. And, and that's actually the, I think I read something on your blog, your misunderstood blog first, and there was a link to that um, story. And I, I read that there and both are amazing. So in a few, I'll have you tell our, our listeners where they can find your blog so that they can read your story themselves as well and read some other stuff that you've written. Um, I just want to ask you a few more questions. And I so appreciate you continuing to share. Uh, I think you've already answered this, but do you believe that John Longacre is repentant for what he's done to you or to anyone else? Absolutely not. If you take a look at the Burlington Free Press, they did a huge article, huge, a very extensive, well thought out article. And basically in that article, he says that I he never did what I said that he did. So basically he is reneging on even saying that he even the things that he owned up to doing and going to prison for that he didn't do them, that his um, attorney forced him to do that so that he wouldn't get jail time. The uh, deacon or elder that 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 is like the spokesman for him said that even if they would have known the things that he did before hiring him, that they still would have hired him. And, you know, I was like, OK, so this man's lying to these people. I mean, he's lying to these people. He I have a written confession. It if, if you look through all of my stuff, there are documentations of legal documentation that he confessed to three other pastors that he did what he said he did when I was 14, not when I was 16, but when I was 14. And, you know, now he's saying he did none of that and that everything that um, happened was some kind of inside, you know, the DA or the investigators were trying to set him up or something or that he said, I forget how he worded it. So he's back to, I never did anything to start with. So uh, another question for you, if, if this man truly were the most repentant person in the entire world, you know, he was sorrier than anyone has ever been for the stuff that he did. Do you believe it would be okay for him to be serving as a church leader of any kind, given his history? No, absolutely not. To me, that that's, that's part of the um, part of realizing that, you know what, I failed and I don't belong. And to me that, that there is no, there is not enough sadness, sorry, remorse, anything that tells me that a person has changed 
more than the fact that you don't put yourself in a position like this. The Bible tells us clearly what, what is qualifications. And he, he had sex with a minor. He had an affair on his wife. I mean, he was married at the time. He, you know, he lied. He was deceitful. Like, I, I, I feel like even if he had the most repentant attitude, this one behavior of wanting to be back in a position that he knows he doesn't belong in tells me everything that I need to know. That this is not a place for him to be. When you mess up like that, you have, I feel that you have, that, that part of the consequences is that you don't, you no longer can serve in that kind of capacity. I feel like we have this, um, this idea somehow as like Christians that it is everyone's right to be a spiritual leader. And this is something that you'll find over and over again when you talk to victims of sexual abuse is the people who abuse them. It's like, how dare you not want them to be a church leader? You know, they've repented. But it's like when you abuse a child sexually or in any way, in my opinion, you forfeit the right to be a spiritual leader. You just do. Like it's not, it's not your God-given right. Absolutely. I mean, you forfeit, you think about this, and this is what I, I, I try to have been honing in on a little bit. It's just been like, you know what, in the world, just let's, let's just take ourselves out of the church. Let's just take ourselves into a job in a secular society. And you will find that you don't qualify for a whole lot of jobs because of, of, of being a child predator. Why, why is it different in the church? Why, why is it any different? Like if you, if, why, why should the church have, if, if, if you can't, if it's hard to find a job out in, in, in the community, why is it so easy to find one in the church? That's where I'm, that's where my concern comes in um, a lot um, because it's there. Yes, there is forgiveness. I can forgive this man if he would say, Hey, listen, I was wrong. I did wrong and spent the rest of his life. Like, you know, working somewhere else. And, you know, he was in manufacturing before he got this job. Um, if he stayed the rest of his life in the low key manufacturing, I would have never gone after him. I, I, I don't care. Do you know what I mean? Like he, but it's the, the position he put himself in that has brought me to the point where I am not going to be quiet. And it's because you've lived the life of a person who has been vulnerable to him because of the position he continues to put himself in. So you see that pattern and that that's where he needs to be in order to keep getting more victims so that he can keep preying on people. I say this to people all the time. I don't think that he is a pedophile. And I say that very, very seriously. I do not think he's a pedophile because he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't go after little, little kids. I believe that he likes to go after vulnerable people. And that is what the church is made up of. That is so much of what goes, walks into the doors of a church is vulnerable people. And that's what gives him his power. And that's the scary part about this whole thing. It really is. That's, it's crazy. I was going to ask if he had, um, if he had to register as a sex offender as part of his sentence. Nope. He did not because, um, the two of the felony charges were dropped. Um, if he had been, if it was 20 years later because of the position that he held, um, there's now new laws that would, he would have had to because he was a teacher in, a, in that position. But back 20 some years ago, there, there was no, those laws weren't in effect. So he did not have to register as a sex offender. Um, I was considered over the legal age of consent, which was 16 in the state of Pennsylvania. Yeah. I was just curious about that because a quick background check would have showed and the church never did a background check. Yeah, that's so crazy to me. It's so crazy to me that they hired a senior pastor without doing a background check. Like, what in the world? This is, but this is how he does it. He went there. He went and got in the church. Um, he was working in manufacturing. He started teaching a Sunday school class, and then he started. Then he became an elder, and then he became like you know. Then he became. He would be preaching periodically, and then this position opened up to be the pastor. He had already been there for ten years. He had worked up enough like rapport with these people that they didn't even think two thoughts about doing a background check on him. They've known him for the last ten years, and he seems like an outstanding human being. So why would they do a bit? Why would they do a background check? 
I right there say that this is just his predatory behavior working on this church. He's doing exactly what he did in my school. He came in as a janitor. He then became a Sunday school teacher. He then became a teacher in the school, you know, and then, you know, he, so it just, he moved, that's the, that's his mode of operation and he does it everywhere he goes. And so I, I have been broken by the his church and the, and the way that they have handled it, but I can literally lay my head down at night and be like, listen, like I, I tried to warn you and I tried to warn you as a church. I tried to make it, I tried to do it individually before I ever made it public, but now you're not listening. And I have an obligation to, to make sure that everybody in that church knows and if they make the decision to stay and be a part of his ministry or whatever it is that's their decision but i am not ever going to have to you know feel that like i just didn't do my part in telling and i mean you've done a lot and it's like i mean i mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast but i can't say it enough like your courage because that is like it's no small thing dealing with church people, Christian people who do not want to believe that their pastor, you know, could be this person who's done terrible things and there must be some mistake. And he was a different person back then, blah, 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 the things that we love to believe about predators. And you've you're standing up and I know that it hurts. Like I know that feeling, the the pain of of having people not want to believe you, or even if they do believe you to just, they view you as the problem. Like it's not the predator. It's, it's the victim who will not be quiet about the predators. Yeah. And if you read these articles, you can hear like the elder has said to me, could you tell Kelly to knock it off? Like knock this crap off. Like, like it's my fault. Like I am trying to ruin his life. I'm not trying to ruin his life. If he would have stayed low key, he would never heard another word from me. So you know, it, it's it's heartbreaking. It's just heartbreaking because the church, as sadly as this is to say, not all churches. So I I, I, I I preface that not all churches, but a lot of churches don't realize that the world handles the situation better than they do. And that is sad. That, that breaks my heart, too. As a, you know, as a kid, I grew up in the church. My dad was always a pastor, a missionary. I was an MK, a PK. I was there every time the doors were open, and it is sad. It's sad to, as a person who's been a part of and loved the church my whole life, to say, if you're a survivor of sexual abuse and you need help, that's not where I'm sending you. It just isn't. No way. And that's sad. It's really sad. Well, um, Kelly, I want you to tell our listeners before we wrap up here, how can they find you and, and find out more about your story? My biggest platform is on Twitter. Um, you can find me at Kelly Haynes 713. I also am on Facebook, just under Kelly Haynes. And uh, I have my blog, Life Hurts, You're a Fighter, I think it is. That that's I'm on, I'm on my blog post. I actually have a really big blog post coming up that I, that I did after I did my Oz show because I had a lot of people come to me about um, what if you can't tell your story? Like, what if you don't have the opportunity that you have to tell your story? And so um, I'm really working very hard to um, give a blog post about the fact that not everybody can tell their story. Not everybody has the opportunity. Not everybody wants to, but it doesn't make them any more or less brave than I am because I am doing it. And so watch for that um, coming out. That's going to be my big thing. But yeah, you can pretty much find me any social media um, network, like anywhere you can find. I'm pretty much everywhere. But um, yeah, please, I'd love for people to follow me. Um, Just keep up with the things that are going on and um, just making sure that people are aware that there are great churches out there, but there are also ones that are hiding predators behind the pulpit. And and we, we need to make it stop. We need to expose it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Kelly, thank you so much. I so appreciate you taking the time. And I know we did a lot of time, um, but it's such an important story. And I'm so excited that um, my listeners are going to be able to hear it. So thanks a lot. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's these little things that um, keep me going and wanting to tell my story and not not feeling like I'm not being heard. So um, you've done a bit of healing on your end too. Absolutely. You are so welcome. Well, Kelly Haynes, everybody, I have linked to her blog, her Twitter, her Facebook, and the video of her Dr. Oz appearance in the show notes of today's episode. So just check out the show notes, click on all the links, and you can follow Kelly on all of the places where she is advocating and speaking out against sexual abuse in Christian institutions. 
and I know she would love to have more people following along and supporting her. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode, but join me next time here on Survivor Sanctuary. Great things are coming next week. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening to Survivor Sanctuary with me, Kelly Downing. If you found value in today's podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Not only will it put a big smile on my face, more importantly, your reviews will help make it easier for other survivors and survivor advocates to find this podcast. Also, make sure you subscribe to Survivor Sanctuary wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also join the conversation in our Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. And for exclusive content, be sure to visit SurvivorSanctuary.com. Join me next time for another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. See you then.